0: But uh, try to think about uh, serving as part of that ministry here at the church. With that, uh, let us join our hearts and minds together as we ask God for light this morning. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you this morning to open our eyes and open our ears and to open our hearts to make us willing and ready and able to see your truth to embrace it and to walk in your ways. We pray desperately for your help this morning as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. The title of the sermon is Have You Been Convicted? Hear now the word of God from John chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My son has been uh, searching for a summer job, and so he's filling out applications. And he was doing one last night, and you know he was reading the questions out loud uh, as he was filling it out online, and of course. He comes to that question, uh, have you been convicted of a felony? Thankfully, the answer is no. (laughs) Misdemeanor. (laughs) And I'm guessing somewhere along the line, you have applied for a job or a permit or a license. Somewhere in your walk of life, you have encountered an application where you've had to answer that very question. And I think it's safe to say we're all very happy to be able to answer that no, right? Nobody really wants to be convicted. Nobody wants to answer that question in the affirmative and in the affirmative. Being convicted is not a good thing. It's bad news, right? You you see it in the news. <laughs> it's a, someone's convicted, it's on the front page of the paper, or it's, it's part of your a notification that comes on your smartphone. So-and-so was convicted today. It's big news, it's bad news, particularly, obviously, for the person who is convicted. And when you are convicted, you often lose a lot of privileges in society. You lose access to credit. it may be difficult to get a job, the right to vote and of course the worst possible type of deprivation is the deprivation of liberty. You could be incarcerated, you could be put into a cage, right You can lose your liberty because you are convicted being convicted is bad. I think we could all agree on that. But sometimes, Sometimes being convicted is good. Sometimes it can be really good. It can be the best thing that has ever happened to you. Sometimes being convicted can liberate you rather than incarcerate you. It can set you free. And ultimately, that's what this text is about this morning. This morning, our text tells us about the liberating power Of being convicted. In our text, Jesus promises Pentecost. He promises to send his spirit to his people. And he says, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Three things this morning, which works perfect for a pastor, because you got three things for your outline. He's come to convict. And what I want you to do this morning is to answer one simple question, to ask yourself the very simple question, which is the title of the sermon, have
1: you, have you, you, have you been convicted?
0: Let's answer that question. Let's look at our text together this morning. Now, the first thing I want to deal with just briefly before we look at those three things the Spirit has come to convict us of is to first grapple with that word convict. You might have noticed I used a different uh, version of the Bible, different translation this morning. I used the ESV instead of the NRSV. And one of the reasons I chose the ESV is because it translates that word and uses The word convict when speaking of the Holy Spirit's work in verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now that Greek word that's translated as convict may be translated in other ways. It's hard to translate. It has a wide meaning. There are other options, and if you have a different translation, you might see the word expose. And the idea there is the Spirit has come to expose our sin, to uncover the guilt and bring it to light. Other translations use the word convince or prove, as if the Spirit is coming to persuade the world of its guilt. But I chose this translation and I chose convict because I think it gets at the idea best, at least to our modern minds and understanding. Because if you look at that Greek word and the other place it is is used in the New Testament, what you find is it is used when God is trying to bring to light in a person's life, convince them, convict them of their personal sin, of their guilt and shame before God, so that they will seek God and seek His mercy. It is as if the Spirit is a prosecuting attorney who comes into our lives with an indictment, who says, these are the charges brought against you, and then convicts us in our hearts of what we have done against God. Convicts us of three particular things, as the text says, our sin, righteousness, and judgment. So let's look at those three things this morning. The first thing the Spirit convicts us of is sin. And particularly here, Jesus notes that the Spirit's convicting work focuses on a particular sin in our lives, the most damaging and, if I can say it, damning sin of all. And that is a sin of unbelief. Look at verse 9. Concerning sin... He convicts us concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Ultimately, that is the sin that can't be forgiven, right? That's the unpardonable sin. It's the failure to believe in Jesus Christ. All sins can be forgiven except that one. That is the capital crime in the Scripture. That is the crime that results in the worst possible sentence imaginable separation from God. It's what Jesus told to Nicodemus in John chapter three, verse eighteen. Whoever believes in Him, that is the Son of God, is not condemned. And whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You have to understand that, according to the scriptures, that is the biggest human problem. The church often focuses on a variety of different sins. Right? We we talk about personal sins, we often focus a lot on sexual sins and things like that, we talk about it a lot, but this is the big one. This is the most important one. This is why John wrote his gospel. Herman Ritterboss, when he wrote about John's gospel, he said this, the fourth gospel, that is John's gospel, consistently stresses the religious character of sin. It is not blind to sin as moral corruption, Or to the enslaving character of sin, but it reaches behind these characteristics of sin by stressing the world's deepest misery and lostness does not consist in its moral imperfection, but in its estrangement from God. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying our biggest problem is not our moral imperfections. It's not the acts and omissions of our lives. It comes down to this. It's our estrangement from God. It's our lack of belief in God. And so John writes his gospel, and he tells us in the end of the gospel, John 20, 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He comes into our lives to make us aware of that, to expose it, to uncover it, to convict us of the sin of unbelief so that we can embrace Jesus Christ. George Smeaton put it this way He said, Conscience may convince men of ordinary sins, but never of the sin of unbelief. Of the enormity of this sin, no man was ever convinced, but by the Holy Ghost Himself. It takes the Spirit to bring us to life. To convict us of the sin of unbelief. That's why I'm a Calvinist, because I believe that you cannot embrace Jesus Christ. You cannot believe in Jesus Christ until the Spirit first comes into your heart and convicts you of the sin of unbelief. As Edward Klink put it, the work of the Spirit is to reveal the sinful condition of the world, and the work of the Son is to remove it. But the work of the Spirit has to happen first. He has to come into your heart. He has to show you your unbelief. He has to convict you of it. Jesus tells us that the Spirit comes into the world and into our lives to convict us of the sin of unbelief in Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, have you been convicted?
1: Have you? Have you been convicted of the sin of unbelief? Secondly, the Spirit convicts us of righteousness. He convicts us of
0: righteousness. And that may seem a little bit odd at first. How, what does that mean? The Spirit convicts us of righteousness. Righteousness. We don't have any righteousness, right? It's not something we do. Why are we being convicted of righteousness? But that's exactly the point. The Spirit comes into our lives to convict us of the lack of righteousness, our want of righteousness. And He also comes into our lives to expose and to uncover and to disabuse us of our self-righteousness and our false righteousness. That's what the Spirit does in His work of conviction. He convicts us of righteousness, a deceptive self-righteousness like what Paul spoke about in Philippians 3.6 when he spoke of his legalistic righteousness, which he possessed as a Pharisee. He describes himself as faultless and blameless. It was a false righteousness that he had that he had to be disabused of so that he could embrace the true righteousness in Christ. In Romans 10.3, we're told the entire nation of Israel did not know the righteousness that comes from God and instead sought to establish their own righteousness. Beloved, that's what we do all the time. We are, by nature, creators of self-righteousness, of a false righteousness. We lack true righteousness in Christ, and the only way we become aware of that is that the Spirit comes and works in our hearts. We all do it. We all engage in kind of creating a self righteousness, a false righteousness of substituting something else for the righteousness of Christ. It's all around us in our culture. It's amazing. You know, we, we think about the time that we live in. It is a time when there is great zeal for righteousness. I mean, you got to look at Twitter, right? You can see it, right? you can see it on Facebook, the rush to judgment the you know everybody wants justice and they want it now everybody's speaking and they get very upset with any type of offense there's a really almost a puritanical nature in our culture when it comes to righteousness but it's not the righteousness of Christ it's a false righteousness it's a deceptive righteousness it's not just the culture that does this, it's the church. We breed it too. We teach people moralisms, right? We, we tell people, do X, Y, and Z, and that's righteousness. But we don't tell them is that the only true righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. We don't preach the gospel, and the gospel is good news. And what the gospel says is that your righteousness is not found in yourself. It's alien, it's foreign, it's found in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Perhaps the church is the greatest purveyor of false and self-righteousness of any institution that's ever existed. Because just like the culture, we get get into this idea that righteousness is about what we do. For God is about who we are, who we are in Jesus Christ. We're all off. Do you know that about yourself? We have such great confidence in our own ability, in our own selves to determine righteousness, what's right and wrong, but we are fundamentally askew. That's what the Bible says. And you can't see it until the Spirit makes you aware of it, convicts you of it. C.S. Lewis has a space trilogy. It's less popular, of course, than the Narnia series. But in that story, there's a protagonist named... Ransom. And in that, he encounters these beings, they're named Eldils, and they represent the holiness of God in Lewis's analogy there. And the Eldils are like shining pillars of light, like think of a beam of light. And Ransom notices these pillars of light and it kind of bothers him because they're they're 10 degrees off of vertical they're not up and down they're, they're not straight they're 10 degrees off and, and it, it kind of it bothers him he's bewildered by it this is kind of the holiness of God right why is it off 10 degrees but then he eventually realizes. It's not those eldils, it's not those pillars of light that are off 10 degrees. It's the world, it's Him that's off 10 degrees. We're all askew and, and those things are right. That's how it is with God. In God is true righteousness, in Christ is true righteousness, and we're all 10 degrees off. And the only way we recognize it, the only way we come to terms with it, the only way we embrace Jesus Christ is that the Spirit comes into our lives. And convicts us of our lack of righteousness, convicts us of our false righteousness. So let me ask you have you been convicted?
1: Have you been convicted? Have you been convicted of your need of righteousness in Jesus Christ?
0: That's what the Spirit came to do to convict us of the sin of unbelief, to convict us of our false righteousness, our lack of righteousness, to drive us to Christ. And then, thirdly, and And finally this morning, the Spirit came to convict us of judgment. Of judgment. And again, that's a hard one at first to make sense of. right? Sin is an easy one, but righteousness is hard. Judgment, what's that talking about? Well, some believe that what it's about is that the Spirit comes to tell us that the world has been condemned, the world has been judged in the cross. I don't think that's exactly right. That's some views of commentators. I think rather what it's about is convicting us of our lack of sound judgment about the world, about morality. That the Spirit convicts and shames us for our foolish, our immoral, and our wrong judgments about things. He comes to show us how wrong we are about stuff. Particularly in how we set up moral standards, how we judge situations, our judgments of things. I learned a new word recently. The word is presentism. Presentism and Google defines it as this, the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. Presentism, you see it all around you. It's why George Washington's name is taken off of schools, right? It's the idea that we stand here... Now, in the 21st century, and we judge all who have gone before based on the moral judgments, the moral standards of us right here and right now in this moment. Presentism. And it's an example of what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with us, what's wrong with humanity. That's how we think about moral issues, right? Right? I must be the possessor of all the greatest truth in all of history, and I stand in judgment of all generations that have gone before. We don't look at the Bible for it. We don't look at philosophy for our morals, and we don't think about natural law. We don't contemplate things. We just say, hey, it seems right to me right now in this moment, in this present day, and so it must be right. That's how we judge things. Our judgments are askew. Leslie Newbegin put it this way. He said, All people everywhere have ideas of right and wrong, and all people draw the line somewhere to mark off and to judge what has to be condemned. These lines are drawn in a marvelous variety of ways. Ethical standards are notoriously relative to time and place and culture. In fact, ethical pluralism has become almost an article of faith in our highly mobile and differentiated modern societies. What is he saying? He's saying we're all over the place, that our judgments change and shift. This is what I'm talking about. The Spirit is come to show us how wrong our judgments are, that there's only one true north. And we're just all over the place. Our judgments change with time and situation and context. Think of the example of of Bill Clinton. Think of the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal. Now, think about that. That's 30 years ago. Here is the President of the United States, someone, the most powerful person in the world, I think we can say that without a doubt, and an intern in the Oval Office. And you remember when that happened, the way that broke down, right? The, the right, the Republicans were all about family values, how awful, you know, this was a terrible thing. And the left was all about stop being so puritanical. What's wrong with this consensual people having sex? What's the big deal? It's an extramarital affair. What's the big deal? Now think about it now! There are CEOs being fired every day for having consensual relations with people who are just a tiny bit below them in power, in corporations, consensual relations with adults. Today that would be viewed and judged in a totally different moral Kind of rubric and compass, right? Than it was then. What's thirty years? How different it would be. And by the very left that once supported it would now claim it's uh, this the
1: most horrible thing, and it is. We're all over the place. J.K. Rowling. I was reading Russell
0: Moore writing about J.K. Rowling and how she's been kind of you know whipsawed by different moral opinions. Though you know, when Harry Potter first came out, it was. The Christians going after her about magic and all of these things and the the wickedness that was in Harry Potter. And now she's facing this tremendous backlash by a wave of people who are criticizing her for being a feminist, in essence. That's what we're like. We're all over the place when it comes to judgment. We once called indigenous people savages. We once referred to black people as three-fifths of a person. And to this day, we begin to talk about you know, babies you know, as, as tissue samples, right? As places to harvest cells. We can't trust our judgment, and particularly judgments about God. And if anything pr- pr- proves that, as Gary Berg notes so well in his commentary on John, it's the crucifixion of Jesus. You think moral judgments of humans are reliable? We took the most righteous, good person, the only one who is good. And we put him on trial. And we judged him. And we crucified him. That's how our moral judgments are about God. We get it wrong. And the Spirit has come to show us that, to convict us of that, to convict you of that in your heart. No matter how you know, wise you think you are, or have you've it all figured out, you're off. The Spirit comes, Jesus tells us, to convict the world of our lack of judgment. And I want to ask you this morning, have you been convicted
1: of that? Have you been convicted? Have you been convicted? Beloved, do you see why we need the Spirit? Do you see why we need to be convicted? We can't
0: see ourselves as we really are. That's the fundamental problem. That's why we need the Spirit to show it to us, to prove it to us, to convince us of it, to uncover it so we can see it. We need to be convicted. And when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, what happened? When the Spirit came, what does the Scripture say? Verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. Now when they heard this, they heard the preaching, the Spirit-inspired post-Pentecostal preaching, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, Repent! Repent of what? Your sin, your lack of righteousness, your askew moral judgments, and believe in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. On Pentecost, what Jesus said would happen, happened. The Spirit arrived and convicted the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And although the day of Pentecost itself is a one-time, non-repeatable event, It is also something that happens every single time a Christian uh, comes to faith, every time a person comes to faith, right? There's a mini Pentecost in our lives. As the Spirit comes into our lives, as the Spirit shows us, convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment, the Spirit must
1: arrive. He must come into your heart and show you who you are and who Christ is. And you got to see it. Because, beloved, one of the problems we have
0: is the we self-idealize.
1: And we self-idolize. It's the greatest trap of humanity. There's a story about
0: Malcolm Muggeridge. He was a a satirist, a British satirist, and journalist, a profound thinker and writer, Christian. And he talks about his own conversion. He tells the story about when he was serving as a journalist uh, in India. And one day he was by the river and he was bathing there. And as he was in the river, he saw this woman down the river some way and immediately a certain lust created in his heart and and he wanted to be with this woman he was married he knew what that meant he knew what infidelity was he knew what he wanted to do
1: but she was far away he wanted that woman and so he began swimming vigorously
0: towards her approaching her Her back was turned to him, and when he got there and arrived there near her, she turned around and she smiled at him.
1: And he describes what he saw. He describes the woman as old and and hideous.
0: Her skin wrinkled, her mouth toothless, and worst of all, she was a leper. And Muggeridge was kind of just, you know, stricken with this kind of disgust and he and he kind of lurched back from it and he said to himself, what a dirty, lecherous woman. But then in that moment, something happened. He felt this conviction in his heart and he knew that what he had just said was a lie. He knew in that one moment when the Spirit convicted him of sin and the lack of righteousness, and his perverse moral judgments, that he was the lecherous person in this situation. And the Spirit did that in his life, and he embraced Jesus Christ as his Lord. The Spirit did his work, and that has to happen for all of us.
1: A moment when we really get who we are. Who we are without God. And how much we need God. Muggeridge was convicted that day. Have you been convicted? Now, let me close this sermon with good news because it is ultimately good news. The bad
0: news is you are a sinner. That's the bad news. You are convicted, you are guilty. But the glorious and good news is that God loves you. That's the good news. Tim Keller, who passed away just recently, I need to quote him on this Sunday, he said this, he had the saying he liked to use, and it's right on. He said, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine, and you're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Being convicted can be a glorious and wonderful and good thing. You see, when the Spirit comes to convict you, He's not coming to put you in prison, to incarcerate you, to deprive you of liberty, to shrink your life in some way. He's coming to tear it wide open. He's coming to set you free. He's coming to give you liberty. He's coming to allow you to breathe. Breathe as a free person, free from the power of sin.
1: Free from the bondage of self-love. That's why it's good to
0: be convicted. The conviction of the Spirit is not about putting you in a cage. It's about setting you free from one. Oswald Chambers put it this way, The Spirit of God is always the Spirit of liberty. The Spirit that is not of God is the Spirit of bondage. The Spirit of God convicts vividly and tensely, but He is always the Spirit of liberty. God who made the birds never made bird cages. It is men who make bird cages. God comes to set us free. The Spirit comes to set us free. Being convicted is a good thing thing, the best thing that can happen to you, being convicted by the Spirit. It can
1: liberate you rather than imprison you. So let me ask you one last time. Have you been convicted? Have you been convicted? Have you been convicted? Let's pray. Oh God, We thank you for
0: Pentecost. We thank you for the coming of the Spirit. We thank you each and every time the Spirit invades the life of a person and awakens them to the truth about who they are and who you are. We thank you for freedom. We thank you for liberty. We thank you for the casting off of the chains of self-love and self-idolization. Oh, God, we praise you. We praise you, God, the Holy Spirit, for your work in our lives. And we pray that you will convict many, that you will do your work, and that you will use us as your instruments to set people free. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.